just doing a sound check. Sounds like that's okay. Yeah, good. So tonight I want to just offer some thoughts about um, reconnect, motivating our aspiration and courage. So at this point on the retreat, I'm talking to various people and it's totally the normal time. Some people may be starting to notice that this practice can be challenging. Have you noticed that? And not in the way you expected it to be, which is really the main challenging part. Um, So just a few things about that. But this is really normal. The first most obvious way is just that second week, third week, the hindrances come up, as John talked about last week. Uh, I don't want to go into those a lot, but that's, that's just really kind of basic what happens. It's sort of the way I think of it is like a two-year-old having a temper tantrum. You know, you're saying, we're going to sit and walk and pay attention to what's happening. It's like, no, I'm not going to, and you can't make me. I'll get angry, or I'll get into desire, or I'll just get restless or sleepy or doubt, whatever, just sort of like that. And we just kind of go, okay, 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 fine. You have your little tantrum. We keep on going. We keep on sitting. And so that's the least of it. <laughs> the hindrances are the least of it. <laughs> that's obvious, even though it's a lot of suffering. So there's lots of ways, but just what I want to talk about tonight is some of the ways it starts to be challenging is that really um, our ideas, our views, maybe not quite realized, our expectations of what practice is or how it should be going or what's good or whatever, they all get challenged one way or another. And we tend to take that personally and not recognize quite what's happening. And it's really, really difficult. So why I want to talk about aspiration. Just a couple of simple ways. I could give the whole talk just giving examples of how that happens, but I don't want to do that because you each have your own examples. But just two simple ones, just that I've noticed just even from talking to people the last couple days. One way is sudden change in the practice. You're going along and you think finally the mindfulness got more steady or the mind got more calm or things were happening fast or whatever in your mind, there's the view, this is either it's definitely it'll be more pleasant. We never think it's going well when it's less pleasant. So it's more pleasant or it's more easeful or it's matching some idea you have, whatever. And then suddenly, through no fault of yours, it changes. It just changes. You're going along fine. You didn't do something wrong, and suddenly the clarity's gone. You don't know what's happening. Everything's flying all over. That calm and peace is restless. How many of us go, okay, that's what's happening now? For a moment, we try that, but secretly we're trying that so it goes away, right? No, that's what's happening. Then we think, what did I do wrong? What did I do? Right? That happens. Or... Another way that, that people are seeing too, and we will more and more, is you're, you're going along and there's really, 
You're seeing things, you're seeing impermanence in, in, say, in different personality patterns. Or just take something simple, I'm making this up, the habit of wanting. Just, I don't know, wanting to be first in line for breakfast. And seeing that, and the suffering of it, and really, I'm totally making this up as an example, the awareness really sees through it feels the suffering of that wanting. In that moment, it lets it go. Think, wow, I really see in all the ways in my life I need to be first because of, you know, the whole nine yards. And, you know, I really got this. I understand it. That the suffering of craving and my personality patterns. And, you know, that's, that's great. You, you really, there was wisdom seeing it. And then the next day at breakfast... The next day at breakfast, you're dying because you've got to be first in line. And you go, why? I saw this. I know this. It's over. Why is this happening again? Or you come back to another retreat and you go, again? This? Again? Didn't I go through this to a great degree of suffering the last time? I got it. I've handled this. Apparently not. But, <laughs> but isn't it, you get a sense of what I mean, right? I'm not just talking, you know, off the top of my head. And how we suffer from that, not so much from what's happening, but from the idea that it shouldn't be this way. Somehow I did something wrong in practice or I understood it. Why is it back? What, do you know, there's a way we take it personally. And then what comes doubt, huge doubt in yourself or in the technique or in the Dharma or in the, what we're telling you or in whatever. Just, and, and then the whole thing can start to spin. It's not going to stay that way. This is normal. But I just, just, want to speak to it, because what, what really can be starting to go on here, this is different from just the hindrances which just come up, is in each of these simple examples, the big suffering is, of course, not wanting to be with the unpleasant and wanting the pleasant. That's almost always the bottom line, identifying with it. But it's our views, un and maybe we don't quite recognize they're in the background of what practice is supposed to be, how it's supposed to work, or, you know, and an unrealistic expectations. This, I think, big time, certainly for me and for, I mean, I don't want, I'm about to make a blanket statement. I'm saying I don't want to make a blanket statement. I'm about to make one. But <laughs> our tendency in this speedy culture is to expect results quick, quick. Not getting it, this is a whole life process. And that's already quick. If you look at how, <laughs> if you look at how the Buddha talked about it, he's talking about you know, eons of lifetimes. We'll just stick to one. But Sharon always talks about the first year IMS was opened, and they got mail addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> That's kind of what we think. Okay, I saw it. I got it. It's over. Let's move on. What's new? What's interesting? You know? Yeah. Greed again? No, I'm not interested in greed anymore. I got that one. 
But it's really, um, I'm making this sound simple, but I think it's really the, the radical nature, the profundity of the, what the Buddha is talking about what real freedom from suffering is. And we talk about it in the Buddhist context, but I have, to, I mean, I'm not an expert on any other religion, but the little bit I know of others at the heart of any mystical aspect of religion is, is the same kind of radical nature of seeing through the normal kind of culturally conditioned habits of our mind on a very deep level. Um, as I think I said the other night, or some, one of us did, that the Buddha always said his teachings are kind of taking us against the stream of the, the current, you know, the, the main part of society, not everyone, even then. And of course, externally, just coming and doing this is really, you know, not the normal thing in the big picture. But... What I want to talk about now, where we're kind of coming up against the wall, where our expectations aren't being met, where our ideas that we don't even maybe know we're holding are being challenged. And this is so um, unsettling to us. Is on the the really, the subtle, well, sometimes they're gross, but they're also very subtle habits of our mind that are what are creating the uh, suffering moment to moment. So the Buddha's teaching, it's radical, radical in looking at this. It encompasses all aspects of our life. His teaching that the, the, the real freedom of heart-mind is in a moment or altogether when the heart-mind consciousness is free from the greed that is clinging, whether it's taking the form of greed or aversion and delusion of not recognizing accurately, taking it personally, which he, he said in the Four Noble Truths, which I'm just going to name them. That's a whole bunch of talks, but the radical nature of the first truth being the fact of dukkha, of the unreliable, um, unsatisfactory nature of all phenomena, all phenomena. All phenomena, thank you. <laughs> the writer is not a yes, that's the correct language. All existence. It doesn't mean everything's bad or unpleasant, but, but not reliable in terms of lasting satisfy, satisfaction. <laughs> Everything. And this is to be understood. Just even... Looking at life that way is like, wow, you know, most people don't even want to think that. And it's so radical because it's not just the unpleasant things, it's everything. That's a whole other talk. The second is the cause, as, as you know, the Buddha named the cause of our suffering, the, the cause that he is offering us tools to understand, and the understanding will free us, is the word in Pali, tanha, which literally translates into English as thirst. This quality of craving, and it can be craving that manifests as greed, wanting something, or craving that manifests as pushing away the unpleasant. And it's not about the object, it's about this quality. 
in the heart, mind, in the consciousness. And it's just this, this leaning forward, this pushing back that, that clouds and distorts pure perception. And the, the real suffering of it is that it's suffering in the moment. It keeps us from recognizing accurately. But what it really keeps us from recognizing accurately when it's present and unrecognized is the, the liberating truth of the pure heart and mind, the, that radiant nature of heart and mind that someone read that quotation, the, the potential of recognizing the non-separation, that it's not me against the world, the Ubuntu that I, I read from um, Desmond Tutu last time, the sense of connectedness, the real um, pathos, I think, of craving is not only just that it's unpleasant in the moment, but that we hold on to it, and it's what keeps us from recognizing the truth. And the truth liberates. It's not that we have to figure something out. The third truth being that there is an ending of this dukkha, of this unsatisfactoriness, of this moment-to-moment suffering that arises in our heart in a moment and ends in our heart in a moment. And that's often, Nibbana is what it's called, but it's often described by the Buddha as the mind-heart in which Greed, aversion, delusion is not arising. It's often described that way. And so even um, sometimes the arhat, the so-called completely enlightened model, is one in who even the tendency for greed, hatred, confusion to arise has been cut off at the root. It's completely gone, not arising at all. But along the way, even a Sado Upandita would say, a moment of mindfulness when there's not those kalesa, I'm going to use that word kalesa, I don't have to keep saying greed, hatred, delusion, okay? And I don't like defilements, so I'm going to keep saying kalesa. When they're present and unrecognized, can't see clearly, but in a moment when there's not, and there's mindfulness, wisdom, call that a moment of freedom. That we can taste that we can recognize as we go through our practice here. A moment, boom, boom. And then the next moment, the wanting comes up, the diversion comes up, the sense of it's all going wrong comes up. And then that's why the fourth, the fourth truth is the path, you know, the way of practice, the way of life, to, to work with this, to come to understand it, because it's radical. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, who for him the Four Noble Truths was really his major practice of his life exploring it. This is just one little thing. Living the Four Noble Truths as a daily practice and understanding them as a profound reflection provides a context for your entire life. But to sincerely live in this manner is not easy in modern life with its conflicting push-pull forces and confusing cultural messages as to what is valuable. And I think this is where, and I don't think it's just modern life because the Buddha wasn't living modern life and he was saying the same thing. But as Bhikkhu Bodhi was saying, I had a quotation, that it's a lot harder. He said, um, in an age of easy pleasure, and that might be different from the Buddha's time, 
I like that. In an age of easy pleasure, the values of really understanding the Four Noble Truths of renunciation and compassion and wisdom, mm, this isn't his, it's a harder sell. It's a harder sell these days, that's all. (laughs) But, so what I'm saying is the radical nature of this Four Noble Truths and the, the subtle habits of reaction in our mind, the second noble truth, the craving, aversion and, and wanting coming from identification with anything. These are so familiar, you could say. They just feel like the way things should be. It's like cozy, like an old bathrobe you put on. That's just where we take refuge. And we don't, we recognize it sometimes in big, big, big things, but not when it comes around and starts to impact the way we assess or think about our practice. Well, so taking what came up this morning when I was talking about Vedana and how the Buddha was really clear, and I, this is a sutta I love, Actually, I think Bonte referred to it, the two darts the other night where we hit ourselves with the second dart, aversion to something unpleasant. Well, the Buddha goes on in that sutta to describe how these habits of, of aversion and clinging and delusion are moment to moment arising and strengthened through this, not recognizing what goes on, the, the ephemeral nature of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral sensation, just coming and going. So he says, just, just very simply, you know, whenever there's an unpleasant and the person beats their breast and laments, as Bonte said, then it comes to be an underlying habit in the mind of resistance to unpleasant. It just, I would say, it feels normal. You go up to anyone, not just on the street, anyone here, and you say, your, your, your hand hurts and it's unpleasant. You go, shouldn't you move away? Yeah, right. Why should I stay with this when I can move my hand? Give me a good reason. And you can't, you know, really give you a good enough reason when there's that mindset going on. But anyway, it becomes the habit. And under that underlying habit, uh, this is the Buddha again, of resistance to the unpleasant, the only escape uh, a regular person, a worldling, knows is to, to go for some pleasant sense experience. That's the only escape an ordinary person knows from the unpleasant. So you experience something unpleasant, we go to, to some pleasant experience. In the world, it could be, you know, pick up the phone, turn on the TV, have some ice cream, go to your video, whatever it is. Here, it might be the pleasant fantasy doesn't matter, but just to see, and, and I, to me, that's so sad, that that's the only escape a normal person knows from unpleasantness to lust for pleasant. And so that becomes a habit, he says, that underlies the mind, this craving for the pleasant experience. And then he says, when that's going on, then in terms of neutral, you know, what's, you don't even neutral, what? And so then the delusion underlies from neutral just to say that. So this is one example. We can see it in, in the big experiences, like my little story I made up of craving to have breakfast, right? We can see it, and then we're surprised when it comes back again. But as, as uh, the Buddha was saying, as Ajahn Sumedho was saying, 
we're noticing a moment or two of there's real mindfulness, really seeing through, being able to, to hang out for a moment of awareness with the unpleasantness of craving. Wanting in itself is an unpleasant experience. So what do we do to get rid of it? We get the thing we want. Is it the thing we want that's making us happy or is it that the craving went away? Check it out. See, and you can just sit and be with craving, 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 craving. It'll eventually go away, I promise, because everything does. Keep paying attention. Often you feel that sense of peace. Oh, yeah, because the craving is gone. Yeah, it'll come back. But anyway, so we see it in those, but we may not recognize, well, we, we won't because there's so many mind moments, how familiar these underlying habits of mind are. It's unpleasant. It's like that informs, for so many of us, when there's not wisdom, it informs our worldview, really. When we're not quite aware, what we think is good, what we think is bad, what we think is good practice, what we think is bad practice. And when you hit one of those moments I mentioned in the beginning, you know, it's going along fine and suddenly it all goes wonky and you think, what did I do wrong? Most of us, the mind's just going to start coming up with analysis, right? It just does that. That's okay. We can just recognize that. But mostly we we sort of recognize it, but we're sort of in it. And mostly the analysis itself is going to be informed by, if we don't quite recognize it, the worldview. You're looking at it through the lens of pleasant is better, unpleasant is worse. Something's wrong, you know? And so already the confusion is, is, is sort of distorting the analysis and we go deeper and deeper into confusion and doubt. That's why I could say, I, I really got this. Tejaniya is the one who first pointed it out to me, but I really see it so clear. And it's such a relief when I can recognize it. That once I recognize that my consciousness in a moment, my awareness is... I can be aware there's doubt, aware there's aversion or greed, but you know how sometimes the mindfulness really notices aversion, but you're really noticing it. You can feel that the attention, the mindfulness is clear. You can trust that. Other times, eh, not so much, right? Yeah, there's aversion, but you can, as someone said today, but I also feel like I'm embodying it. It's really here. Or doubt or greed. When you know that so, The thing that really is so freeing to me is to know because whatever thoughts are coming, whatever analysis, whatever you're trying to figure out is moving through that lens of Kalesa, you can't rely on anything it says. It may be true, it may be not. You can't trust whatever assessment comes up because it's through the lens of Kalesa. Knowing that is like, for me, it's like a huge relief got to figure out what to do. No, no, no. What's wrong with my practice? No, no, no. It's not like this. No, no, no. Oh, God, you're totally in Kalesa. feels like this. All I can do is just sit and walk and notice as best I can and trust that the steady awareness takes care of itself. No, i got to do something. i got to fix this. That's not good enough. So just knowing that, okay, I just can't rely on anything the mind says right now. It'll keep on trying, you know. Okay, can't rely on it. That's really so relieving. If I could hand you that, I would love to. <laughs> so, so, 
starting to see how quickly... Okay, I have to move along here. Because what I want to get to tonight, there's many different ways to go with this. But when we're in the phase, I mean, at different times, of, of running into this kind of like, like hitting the wall, not just that it's difficult, but the, you're feeling that sense of something's being shaken up, something's untrustworthy, you don't really know where to stand. Like your, as I was saying, your, your assumptions aren't really matching reality. Your unrecognized views of practice are being challenged. It's really unsettling. And sometimes, and it's usually unpleasant, and it may be that what's occurring is also difficult. Physical pain, emotional trauma, so, so that's also difficult. And so you're, you just don't feel like you have a handle on anything, right? Uh, for a moment, it changes. But the point I want to just talk about tonight, because over the last few years, it's been more and more something that's more and more helpful to me that I didn't used to call on so much. And that's to, at these times, rather than trying to figure out how to practice correctly, because it's through the lens of Kalesa, you can't tell, just keep going steady, but to, to tune into, to reconnect with and tune into what's your deep, what's your real motivating aspiration in your life, in your practice. There's no right or wrong. You can't do this wrong, okay? It's a way of, uh, it can start with a reflection, but it's not like intellectually thinking. That may be how you start. And it's not that there's a right way it should feel. But when I find myself feeling shaky, worn down, low energy, I'm trying to remember to practice, but maybe you're thinking why, or maybe it's just dry and dead or whatever. Then I just take a moment. Really just get quiet with yourself. And it can go different. But start by just remembering or tuning in to either aspiration, what, what, how you began your practice, why you're doing it now. And then I'll say more about it, but now I want to backtrack and say what I mean by aspiration. Aspiration is a form of intention, right? A form of motivation. So the intention that just arises in a moment with any particular action of thought, of body, of speech, is one intention. Talking about aspiration is like a more overarching, broader sense of deeper purpose. Like what's really important to me? And it can become a support a reference point, give us a sense of uh, resolution and courage to keep being with for a larger purpose than what's immediately in front of us. So, for example, not even particularly dharmic, but we all know that. But if you have children, there's plenty, assuming you're a halfway decent parent, there's plenty of times when you do something that wouldn't be what you would normally want to do or that's really hard for you to do or scary for you to do or whatever, but you do it, there's no question, because it's for the well-being of your child and out of love for your child. You get a sense of what I mean. It's a bigger purpose, not just the moment-to-moment thing. So in terms of aspiration in our practice, it's tuning in, and this can change, you know, as we go through practice, as we have deeper understanding, as different things motivate us. 
But how is aspiration different from craving a goal? The thing with aspiration and the way I'm talking about it is it's supportive in terms of it's, it's turning our heart, mind, our consciousness to the wholesome. So aspiration, say for example, and it could be anything, say for example at times my aspiration would be to really free the heart and mind from kalesa to be of benefit to all beings, okay? That's the words. When there's a moment that my heart mind is really in touch with that, wow, that might be a potential in this world. It, when it's an aspiration, the mind isn't looking forward, leaning forward, one eye on the goal, because then you feel that sense of, of tanha. Tanha can be for awakening, or it could be for an orange. It's the quality in the heart-mind that makes it tanha, not the object. And so you can feel it's not this aspiration that's wholesome when you feel that narrowing, the frustration, well, I could never do this, I'm a piece of garbage, there's no, you know. That's not aspiration, (laughs) that's wanting an aversion. But aspiration, it may be this sense of, wow, is that really possible? And thinking, for example, the Buddha often said, if it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. Just think that. And so then it's how it comes back, oh, it, it, as aspiration, it brings um, a sense of brightness, of lightness to the heart, to the mind. It can kind of energize. It just says, you know, okay, I can be with this another moment, for example. That's how aspiration is different from expectation, wanting, which leads to doubt, frustration, and self-involvement in a way. And you can flip back and forth, but exploring it and see. You all have. None of us would be here without some sense of aspiration. And as I say, the words I just said as an aspiration can really inspire me at some point. Or I could be like lost in, in an aversive, self-judging mind state, and I say that, and I go, yeah, fat chance, you know, who do you think you are? Then that's, that's not working at that moment. <laughs> but, but So I, I just want to say to find ways. That's not the only thing. So first, as you go through the days, it can be a kind of um, wise reflection to take time various times, to just reconnect with what's your aspiration. And it may be worse, or it may be, for me, what, this is what I've been doing more and more lately, and it really, it helps. It turns the mind to the wholesome, and it takes, it takes me out of, you know, just the self-identification, and it brings in this real sense of, of yes, this is the potential of this path. It does go against the stream. We need, you know, support in our aspiration. So it's like I've been, you can, with wise reflection, bring in a sense of what helps you reconnect with that. So for me, often, and so I'm just going to give some examples for me, you find what's true for you. But for me, at times, it's, it's different people that I've met that are manifesting different aspects of purity, of heart-mind, or different aspects of devotion, different things that 
rekindle that aspect in my own heart mind. I mean, we're not inspired by somebody if there's that, it, 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 we're inspired because it's touching that wholesome quality in our own mind stream. Otherwise, we, you know, it just misses. We don't know what they're talking about. But so one of the ways is just, um, well, when I think sometimes when I'm, sometimes it's just remembering when I'm a little bit with something a little bit difficult and I, ah, I'm sick of this already. And then, you know, just, I'm just sick of this already. Let's move on to something else. And I just remember I really uh, have a commitment to awaken, not just for myself, but at least in this world to be of benefit to some beings. That gives a resolution, a sense of willingness to hang out within another moment. It kind of broadens the thing. If it's just for me, okay, a little aversion is good enough. It's not too bad. Let's move on. If it's for all beings, like, no, that isn't good enough. That little bit of aversion, it comes out in something I say, and I can see it reverberate in the other person, which is, you know, me and the other, not different. It's not okay. In a way of not judging, but no, come back and be with it. And I remember something Ajahn Sumedho was talking about, and he's talking about when he was in uh, his early years in Thailand, as a monk in his robes, you see what the robes are, they're not cool. And in the heat <laughs> in Thailand, <laughs> right? In the hot season under a tin roof, yeah, you just cook. I know this from personal experience, you cook. And so he was sitting there saying, you're just sweating through his robes hour after hour, day after day. And he's saying, you know, I just couldn't bear this another moment. And then I'd find that I could. Just that's, oh, I can't, oh. I'll say to myself, what's so unbearable about this? I often will say that, just for a moment. It's like, oh, okay, I can be with it. That sense of tuning in for me to the aspiration is not just for myself, but for greater benefit in the world. It, that brings in the aspiration can give us again the courage, the resolution, which is one of the paramis, this quality of just willingness to do in a wholesome way. So that's one way. Another way, as I was saying, is I think of different people at different times that can inspire different really wholesome qualities of awakening in me. So I'm going to tell a couple stories, but you'll have your own, whoever it is. And it doesn't have to be Buddhist, you know? And it doesn't have to be that the person is totally perfect. If we're waiting to be inspired, to have our aspiration renewed only by a completely awakened, perfect person, well, few and far between, huh? But the wholesome, beautiful qualities, awakened qualities, there's really a lot more here and there if we open to notice it and then take it in. It can really inspire us. So a couple little stories. One, I've known... a been going to Myanmar like every year for at least a month since 2001. And so I've come to know many nuns. Uh, in, there's many, many nuns in, in Burma. And most of the ones I know, they're like not very, you know, relatively simple. So this one woman, Daw, Daw is just an honorific. Women are Daw, men are U. Daw Uttara became a nun when she was around 20 because her health was really bad, from a farming family, 
a little bit poor, not really poor in Burmese terms, but um, she was really sick and she realized her family was about to sell everything they had, including their house, to pay for her, for her doctor and she didn't want that. And she'd always kind of wanted to be a nun anyway, so she became a nun. And she had so much faith. I mean, she said she, had, she said she had really long, beautiful hair. And when she shaved it, she sold it. And then she used that money to buy her first Buddha rupa, Buddha statue. And many of the nuns that I've met, that their main meditation practice is actually Buddha Nupasana, which is re- recollecting the qualities of the Buddha. And that brings them great faith, great inspiration. It's not my practice. And I mean, I think it's beautiful, but it doesn't do that for me. That practice doesn't do it for me. But being around the nuns who are doing it and seeing this quality of devotion and faith and how they bring that into their lives, that is, helps to deepen my aspiration to purify the heart-mind. So where I'm going with this with, with her, so she was a nun and um, moved from her home village down in the Delta after... Anyway, she moved from there when there was a big cyclone and people lost their land and their lives. And she, she was living around uh, Yangon. But she and her sister nun went to a meditation nunnery. They really wanted to meditate. Not all nunneries or monasteries or meditation ones. That was really what she wanted to do. But her head said, our teacher in her home village, called and said, no, there are these 10 orphan girls. We're sending them to you to take care of. And this many, many nuns, what they do is take care of poor girls and orphan girls from their home village. There's no safety net. There's no other place for them. And sometimes parents send them because it's the only way they can get education or they'll get taught good values or they'll just be taken care of. So these, these young girls are sent. And then the nuns take them in and they become little nuns and they take care of them. So Do Uttara and her sister did like a U-turn. Her commitment was wanting to wake up for, and meditate. But now she had these 10 little girls. Now there's 15 or 20. And so what I saw and how she was, was this complete U-turn. Not like, okay, I got to do this. I'll make the best of it. But the turn around the faith, the devotion. Okay, now this is... The life. This is what life is presenting, and this is the path of awakening. No question about it. And you can see there's so much love and so much friendliness and so much care for these little girls. It's not an easy life, but just to see that. So when I think of her, you know, there's other stuff. I'm not saying everything's all perfect, but when I see that willingness to embrace whatever's coming with a, with a heart of devotion and stay true to one's commitment to awaken in one's devotion. But then this is what it's about right now, loving and caring for these little girls. She says, okay, when they're grown and they, if they don't want to stay nuns, that's fine. But they've had these, these years where we've really taught them how to be a good human being and we've kept them safe. They don't have to go out on the street and they can choose whatever life they choose, but they've had a really good foundation. And then we can go off and meditate, right? So... That's one way that inspires in me that sense of faith and surrender. It inspires me, and that's what practice is. Not about getting it the way I want, but this willingness, this ability of just total trust and surrender to this is how it is right now. 
Sometimes I think of uh, just a person, just their being. There's another, a monk up in Sagain, Ujjayanta. Very simple. He's the, the set of a very small monastery, only, only about three or four monks up in the hills of Sagain. We go to visit him every year. He, I mean, in 15 years, he doesn't look like he's aged a day. And he lives this quiet life, and he just, you know, he talk, doesn't know too much English, but he, um, he's just so, it's just, you walk in the place and it just feels peaceful. And he's a real meta-being. And that's all. It's not like we have these great wisdom discussions and the Abhidhamma. It's just this simplicity, a kind of meta, meta-peace. And I just love being there. You just go and hang out. We sit with him. We go visit. And then after 15 minutes, there's nothing really, nothing really to say, you know. And he's got his this. So then we go on our way. But I have his picture on my desk. I'll just look at it. And it just kind of will, will spark that in me. And that deepens again my aspiration, my willingness. Okay, let's keep on with this practice. Let's keep on with this awareness. It turns the mind to the wholesome. Okay, another completely outside of Buddhism, daily life one. So, um, actually it was just last week. One morning I was just listening to the news. I can, as you imagine, get downcast. And sometimes just listening, you know, to news or just seeing how things are, I kind of think, you know, what am I doing on this planet? I just feel like I, you know, everything's like the opposite of what seems important to me. And this, I don't know, I was telling Guy this and it didn't really go over with him, so maybe you'll also think this is a weird story, but anyway. <laughs> this was it last week. I got, so the last piece of the news was they were talking about a big ceremony in Moscow where they were unveiling a new statue and like 200,000 plus people came to this big ceremony. The statue was a statue, huge, as they do in Russia, huge, five meters tall on top of a giant pedestal, uh, honoring Kalashnikov, who has died a few years ago. Kalashnikov, who um, invented the Kalashnikov AK-47 and other such lovely weapons. And so, so they were, you know, really honoring him as, as um, someone who brought honor to the fatherland with his creativity and his, his um, integrity and on and on and on and all these people. But that's, that's not just about Russia. I mean, that's kind of not that abnormal. And they said, you know, he wasn't around to see this, but he was a little disappointed. He was proud of, his, of what he did. But he was a little disappointed that some of the people who used the AK-47 weren't the right people, like drug cartels used it and, you know, kind of criminals used it. And he wasn't so glad about that. So I'm just kind of listening, you know, what world am I living in? <laughs> but, and that could go, actually kind of went in a little bit of a dejected way. That, that was not deepening my aspiration at that moment. It was kind of like a, huh? But the same day, not that long later, in my inbox, in my email, came um, uh, kind of like I get this daily writing from uh, a Christian mystic society. And it was talking about Gandhian nonviolence. The same day, I thought, you know, I just want to read a little of it because it's like, oh yeah, this is also here. We just have to open, I just have to open my eyes and see it. So it's a long bit. So just all of a sudden, I'm just reading this where he's talking about Mahatma Gandhi says, love is the strongest force the world possesses 
and yet it is the humblest imaginable. Living a, lo- a nonviolent life is no easy task. It requires courageous love drawn from the very source of our being. Then he's quoting Thomas Merton. This says, our dualistic mind, see evil, is very cut and dried. This is good, this is evil, and the only solution is we've got to eliminate all evil. And he says, but this isn't Thomas Merton. Nonviolence, on the other hand, comes from an awareness that I am also the enemy, and my response is part of the whole moral equation. I cannot destroy the other without destroying myself. I embrace my enemy just as much as I must welcome my own shadow. Both acts take real and lasting courage. And then Mahatma Gandhi, you know, he, Mahatma, he coined the term satyagraha because passive resistance didn't capture the active and powerful nature of nonviolence. Satyagraha combines the Sanskrit word sat, which, which translates as being or truth, with graha, which translates as holding firm to or remaining steadfast in. So in other words, satyagraha, nonviolence, is translated as truth force, or holding steady to the truth coming from within, or soul force. And then that brought into mind, having read a bit, a lot about um, Martin Luther King, soul force is really the, the languaging he used for the whole depth of the nonviolence, this really courageous, incredible way of meeting horrific circumstances from this inner place of love that can, is only possible when it springs from this you know, connection with truth whether you want to call it God or we want to call it Dharma, just the way things are. Reality is like this. When we're connected with that, and in a simple moment here, you are when there's not kalesa, the thought of harming doesn't arise. That the fact that the only response to the difficult is aversion or harming, it's so clear that's not true. In that moment, you know. And again, the soul force, that there's people doing that, living from that, acting from that in the world now. You know, John Lewis, the, um, the long-term uh, representative in the House of Representatives here in the States from Georgia, who, as you know, is really, I mean, in his autobiography, he talks a lot about, he uses soul force. So, you know, he was one of the um, original members of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which, you know, led the, in 1959, 1960, the Freedom Rides that helped organize the March on Washington in 63. But just this sense of people now in the world that are still connecting to and acting from this, this depth of understanding. To create peaceful change, we begin by remembering who we are in God. This is the Christian language, but who we are in truth. Gandhi believed the core of our being is union with the truth. From this awareness, nonviolence flows naturally and consistently. So again, just this sense for me of finding 
in different places. And I write them down and I'm saying them to you, but as I say, it's because it re-inspires in me my own aspiration. And that aspiration is, in terms of my practice, just to, to, to find the, the courage, the willingness, the humility, in a way, just for this next moment to show up. Not to figure it out, but to actually have the courage to know we're not going to figure it out. It's exactly not about our figuring it out. It's just the opposite is of that. It is... Um, Let's see where I have to, yeah. It's about freedom from clinging. This freedom of heart and mind is absolutely uncompromising. There's not some part that we get to exclude. And so as we practice and your minds are getting more subtle and we're landing in our views, it includes all views, all our ways of understanding, even with our most sincere intentions, our sincere practice, we're going to. You have to if the practice is working. That's why when you're having these times, we know the practice is working. You think it's not, but we know it is. If everything's all nice and safe and secure the whole time, going just as you like it, no, it's not really happening yet. So with our most sincere intentions, we can't imagine what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be. You know, we want to know ahead of time. We want to know the path. We want to chart ourselves on the path, right? We want to know exactly where we are, even if that makes us feel like garbage because we're not where we think we should be. And even if we've read the path, you've read the progress of insight, you know it all, that just makes it worse. Because you never really know where you are, and we want to know. And you can't. You can't. So these times of confusion, they're really valuable. They're important moments in our path of awakening. Because what's required, we want to know where it's going to be, but what's required, this commitment, this willingness, this determination, this aditana, which is just a moment of, okay, I can just be with this now. Like when Annie talked about it the other night, as Joseph calls it, the sword of wisdom, where you just go, not now. It's not with aversion or clinging, but it's a kind of collecting of the energy. Okay, I can just be with this for a moment. You know, that's, that's what's required. Just to be with what is. This full commitment to open into the unknown. It's not going the way we think. We have no clue where we are. We've lost a sense of path. We're not feeling safe and secure. Great. Just take a moment say, I can just be with this now. Trust in the awareness. Trust in that simplicity of just meeting what's happening. Awakening, enlightenment, it's not a self-improvement project. It doesn't make us feel all better about ourselves and secure and safe. And I know, you know, it's this, the sense of self. It's not like there's a self we're getting rid of, but the sense of me, when I try to imagine what it is, of course we imagine from the sense of me, I'm going to feel so good. I'm going to be floating down the street, you know, the essence of Kuan Yin, the goddess of compassion. So, why, you know, in, this, in a subtle way, you know, it's kind of 
feeding us, confirming our sense of me in a subtle way. No. Non-clinging, it's radical, it's uncompromising. The sense of me is what gets seen through. It's not what gets confirmed. And so at some point, all of the subtle holdings are going to be challenged. And sometimes it's scary, and then it'll be, oh, wow, it's so free. And then because these habits are so pervasive, the next day you thought you were free, they're back again. Okay. I thought I couldn't bear it, but then I found that I could. It's like this now. How can this be? What's happening? It's like this now. It's like this now. This is really the courage, the determination to just moment to moment to moment open into the unknown. I found without continually coming back and seeing what helps reconnect with my aspiration, there's times, you know, there's times for all of us, we just don't have the energy to do it. I mean, it's like that. But find what helps you, what re aspirates, re-inspires, re-reminds you of what's really important to you in life. So again for me, I'll end with one more story. This is a a friend was just telling me, a friend of mine and a long-term meditator yogi has been involved for some years in what's called the Tibet Oral History Project, something that the Dalai Lama actually asked her to do. So what she does is she goes and he wants her to interview Tibetan refugees, really elderly Tibetan refugees in India, in, in the States, wherever, just to get their stories, just to get it down, you know, just to, to see all the... Not, not necessarily teachers or nuns or monks, just all different kinds of people. So she um, told me, actually gave me the whole, the whole um, interview, but I'll just pick some highlights of this particular woman, elderly woman. She interviewed her when she was 70 in 2013. She's living in the States now for many years. Her name is Jang Chuk Palmo. So I'm really condensing. So this is one of those stories that's like you think, you read it and you think, well, this is the kind of stuff you read about Milarepa, you know, or what people did in, in Tibet or these old, these old fantastic practitioners, but today, you know, couldn't possibly do that. And so this is her, her brief story. She came from a nomadic family, but well-to-do. And when the Chinese were invading in 59, they were trying to flee with her whole family, got involved in a firefight, and um, her family was killed. And, and many people. She was shot in the leg, and so then she was captured and taken back to her village and kept under house arrest. So she's just living in her village. But she had this deep commitment to escape, to go back, um, to get to India. And her deep commitment was she wanted to be able to offer prayers for her parents. One must offer prayers when parents pass away, and there was no opportunity to perform prayers here. I wanted to also study and practice the Dharma. And so that was her deep commitment. So she managed to escape. And whole long story, it took her almost a year. She's wandering, some people help her, she's freezing, she doesn't have food, but she manages a year wandering around in Tibet, 
without much to eat, and with, it's a year after she was wounded so she could walk okay, she gets to Mount Kailash with her friends. She's not in India, she's at Mount Kailash. And so she really wants to practice. So she stayed seven years at Mount Kailash, living in caves and practicing the Dharma, doing prostrations all around Mount Kailash. She uh, ran into a lama who showed up after she'd been there a while, and he sounded like he was really a tough lama, you know, not like, oh yeah, you're doing a good job, keep going, but he was really like this radical sort of wisdom lama um, that uh, really inspired her practice. Let me say a couple of things he said just to get. So he says to her, you know, you really have to cultivate love and compassion as well as wisdom to really awaken. So, So how do you relate to the Chinese? said, well, to be really honest, I feel like they're my enemy. And he says, yes, of course you do, and you're doing really good practice, but, but, <laughs> you can't really, let me see, what does it say? You keep practicing like this, the enemy will not be the enemy, but like your relatives. If you can love your so-called enemy, without any degree of difference, if you can do that, if you can learn to not make this difference, this is really part of what you need to do to really be free. So, you know, she goes, okay, well, I put in a tremendous effort to do this. It was really hard. She's not saying la, 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 it was easy. It was really hard. I exercised again and again, even while eating, and doing pilgrimage and prostrations around the mountain, meditating, putting in every effort I could, concentrating single-mindedly on this. I couldn't do it for almost two years. Imagine, it's like, I couldn't do it for almost two years. But somehow, she did. So now she's in the States, an old woman, just describing She said, I can't really talk too great detail about the Dharma and the practice because no one really will understand. You know, it's so subtle. But what I understand is the important benefit of peace. Through practicing peace, one realizes that the problems I suffer are also felt by the other person. When I face difficulties like illness and pain, when I feel happiness, I feel that is also felt by the other person. The suffering I experience is felt by the other. Whatever I feel, the other has the same feeling. If one understands that perfectly, the feeling of wanting to harm another person, of being spiteful and other things, just disappears automatically. That's the sense of in a moment of wisdom, the hatred doesn't arise. That's just how it is. You don't make that happen. Take it as moments, not as you have to be the whole way. That's how I do it. But she's really seeing that, you know? This is how she's... And and what my friend said when she met this woman was what she was really impressed by before she heard her story was just her great kindness, her great sense of love. She came in and the woman was just doing whatever she could to make my friend comfortable, offering her... And this very simple, down-to-earth kindness and wisdom. You know, and you can feel that sometimes in people. So that's another story. 
that inspires me. Oh, this is a real person, not, you know, reading about Shabkar in the 18th century. So see what's true for you, what helps you, if this is helpful for you, to help re-inspire, to reconnect to your aspiration, to just give the energy and courage and uplifting to open into the unknown again for this next moment. So I'll just close with this from, this is from Shanti Deva, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, but quoted by the Dalai Lama. Just, this is a vast bodhicitta aspiration, but it just, again, it, it brings up that aspiration, that inspiration, that energy in me. So I'm reading it for me because it makes me really happy. And now, as long as space endures, as long as there are beings to be found, may I continue likewise to remain, to soothe the sufferings of those who live. The pains and sorrows of all wanderers, may they ripen wholly on myself. And may the virtuous company of bodhisattvas ever bring about the happiness of beings. May the teachings the only remedy for suffering, the source of every bliss and happiness, be nurtured and upheld with reverence and throughout a vast continuance of time endure. May precious bodhicitta take its birth in those in whom it has not taken birth. And where it has been born, let it not cease, but swell and increase ever more and more. Let's just sit a moment. Thanks for your patient attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.